What's up, patrons? It's Emmett. I'm here with John. What's up, John? Hey, what's up? John's back at long last, and we are here to do our reading series on The End of History and the Last Man by Francis Fukuyama, the book everyone loves to hate without ever having read, probably myself included at some times. So I'm excited to get into this one. We did the first section of it, and we'll get into that in a second. First, I wanted to talk about why we were going to do this. And then we want to talk a little bit about Fukuyama himself and what context he's coming out of. And then we're going to get into this first section. So I wanted to do this because the weird German historical philosopher we were doing was basically like too rich and demanding. Like we could have gotten an episode out of every single page we were reading. It was, it was like, it was like too much cake at once. It was like, it's like listening to late period. Yes. Like too many keyboards, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I definitely think not every book is going to lend itself to this kind of thing. Like yeah, some books, like you and I could never sit down and do like something of Aristotle in like 10 episodes. You know what I mean? Like they just yeah. be, it would be <laughs> kind of like, yeah, like it would simply be far too cursory yeah. for what it was and it would be kind of like cheap for people to think that they could listen to that podcast and then like know something well and the I, other one i think it was just a little bit harder like i knew why i was reading it i wasn't sure why i was creating content of it after we did our first episode where i was yeah, like, this is like i well. thought it was marvelous honestly like it really in some of the historical pieces i've written since then has inflected that but yeah i don't think it was right and also one of the things that one of the reasons why we did the true and only heaven or after virtue is not because these are by any means simple books but because that they are important books that tend to get referenced or talked about but never actually read and we'd like to provide access for that and what we like about doing the fukuyama is that it also gives us a window into a period of time that many think to now be at its end or nearing its end mm. perhaps has been for a minute and but because i think that there are some disquieting suggestions he has already i can see them prefigured not just in the title but in the first section about the nature of the end of history and life in the liberal democratic hegemony that seems to be or has been the ideological straitjacket perhaps, that the world has lived in since the fall of the Soviet Union. Now, to talk about Fukuyama himself a little bit. So he grows up in Hyde Park, which is sort of like, a, you know, Rhodesia for tenured professors here in Chicago. And it's part of, it's basically like where you live if you go to University of Chicago. It's a very wealthy neighborhood. Obama's from there. It seems like Fukuyama's from a more upper crust sort of family, I guess because he ends up at Cornell where he studies under Alan Bloom, student of Leo Strauss, who writes The Closing of the American Mind, has done, frankly, my favorite translation of Plato's Republic, and then proceeds from Cornell to go to Yale. And he also spent some time in France studying under Barth and Derrida and studies under Samuel Huntington and Harvey Mansfield. So we sort of get... I mean, this is a very pedigreed type of elite intellectual, somebody who has degrees, I think, for both Harvard and Yale. He ends up doing some work for Rand for a while in the 80s. I don't think that affiliation has ever totally ended. I'm not sure about that. But he is a kind of like high-minded, 
philosophical foreign policy guy that was really important to the shattering classes during the Cold War. And he was a very capable political scientist, even Perry, May, Perry Anderson, who writes a critique of his 2006 book on maybe the Iraq war was a mistake, America at the crossroads, democracy, power, and the neoconservative legacy says that, you know, Fukuyama is generally a pretty sharp guy, even if he thinks that book is kind of less than stellar. But to sort of close this background, I think it's important to talk about like who Fukuyama is going to be thinking with when he's working through this book. And we see a sort of a familiar cast of characters. We get Hegel, Obviously, Nietzsche is invoked in the title, but Ruzhev, who's a Hegelian himself living in exile in France during the Cold War. And Anderson captures his, the influences on his thought like this. The philosophical basis of the construction of The End of History and The Last Man came, as Fukuyama explained, from the reworking of Hegel's dialectic of recognition by a Russian exile in France, Alexander Kozhev, for whom centuries of struggles between masters and slaves, social classes, were on the brink of issuing into a definitive condition of equality, a universal and homogenous state that would bring history to a halt, a conception he identified with socialism and later with capitalism, if always with an inscrutable irony. Fukuyama took over this narrative structure, but grounded it in an ontology of human nature quite alien to Kozhev that was derived from Plato and came along with a much more conservative outlook from his Straussian formation. Kozhev and Strauss had valued each other as interlocutors. They have a famous exchange over Plato's, or sorry, Xenophon's dialogue, Hiero, the tyrant, called on tyranny or something like that, I believe. You can check that out. It valued each other as interlocutors and shared many intellectual reference points, but politically as well as metaphysically, they were very distant. Strauss, an unyielding thinker of the right, had no time for Hegel, let alone Marx. In his eyes, Kozhev's deduction from their conceptions of liberty and equality could only presage a leveling planetary tyranny. He believed in particular regimes and natural hierarchy. I should also note that uh, Charles Krauthammer, who has a blurb on the cover of this book, you know, he was definitely like consummate cold warrior and neocon, describes this book as bold, lucid, scandalously brilliant. It's definitely like of the adverbial book review type thing, you know, searingly meaningful or whatever. Until now, Krauthammer says, the triumph of the West was merely a fact, period. Fukuyama has given it a deeper and highly original meaning. I should say that when Fukuyama breaks ranks with the neoconservatives partway through the Iraq war, Krauthammer basically calls him an anti-Semite for pointing out that a lot of the neoconservatives were in fact Jewish Americans. <laughs> That's um, really funny. I just yeah, just so you know how that <laughs> yeah, just so you know how that plays out <laughs> between them. <laughs> Like there's some like clickbait article title for you out there if you want it like Francis yeah. Fukuyama colon based. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, all right. So that's enough background on sort of what this like. This book arrives after he writes an essay called "The End of History." 
that provokes much debate. He talks about this in the introduction, and I think it's in like foreign affairs or national interest or something. I can't even remember. And everybody gets pissed at him. Well, not everybody. And some people are like, yeah, this is dope. And he's like, well, I guess I'm going to have to write a book sort of spelling out what I actually meant here. And this book was the result. It is, I think, the work of liberal triumphalism post-Cold War. I think it is, while I think it's frankly too even-toned to be considered celebratory, though it does indeed celebrate the downfall of liberalism's competitors. And I also think that it comes with some difficult as I said, disquieting suggestions about what this victory really means in the long run for the West. So with that, we will begin. Just to take a look at the book here, it's basically breaking up, broken up into four or five parts. Yeah, so it is an old question asked anew, the old age of mankind, the struggle for recognition, leaping over roads, and the last man. And we're taking a look at an old question asked anew. So, John, let me ask you, what did you make of this first little section here of the first part, which is called Our Pessimism? It was an interesting window into, like, very specific people and what they were thinking at the time that he seemed to be writing. Like, in some ways... These kinds of thoughts weren't new. Like basically he was saying like there is essentially like communism has fallen and yet there is this sort of persistent sense in which like, because he wants to establish the idea that universal history is real. It's like a defensible idea. Mm -hmm. He even says he would like for this book to be successful and that you don't need to like resort to Hegel to like defend it and believe in it you can just read mm-hmm. this book and believe in it on the basis that it's laid out on in this book sort of and a so, handsome a handsome amb- ambition i would say it's nice to have yeah. somebody that's willing to do that and so the first thing he kind of is dealing with or there seems to be like a, a widely diffused sense that there's not really any meaning to history and that there is no sort of like we have been disabused of the notion of progress. And this is like kind of repeated to the point of being trite now, but because of the two world wars, like how could anyone ever believe in anything ever again? Mm-hmm. Like just fucking cry or whatever yeah. forever. Yeah. And yeah. like after Auschwitz and Hiroshima. To a certain point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. There is this sense. And when I was reading that, I remember thinking like, it's sort of offensive to like, some deep sensibility that you could call like Heideggerian or something that just because of like numbers, you're going to like become a coward now. Like, (laughs) Oh, like when like a thousand people were like slaughtered at this time, like it was still possible to like believe in something. Cause it was only a thousand people Mm -hmm. brutally killed. There were children among them, but like, whatever, fuck them. But like now that it was this (laughs) many people like this, like million, like it's too much. Like, just I look at the figures and I can't handle it anymore. You know what I mean? Like I'm mm-hmm. looking at the spreadsheet and I've lost all, you know, that always struck me as like more or less exactly the argument for that was simply like, you know, there is something to say like, oh, like it's so mechanized now or it's so technological, like the way in which we can destroy other human beings at such a scale. But there is always something overriding in the back of my head whenever I read stuff like that, which is sort of like, 
fundamentally like what are we saying about the difference between like a life and like one million you know what i mean like there's right, something it's the, weird it's going the one on one life there. is a tragedy a million is a statistic sort of thing exactly like weirdly inverted quote, yeah exactly yeah and so that was kind of starting to come up as like often the reason people would bring for saying like it's hard for me to think that there's progress and you can see the way in which those things would be seen as like a direct contradiction to the idea of progress that was floated right up until they happened, which was that science was going to be benign or like largely just positive in terms yeah. of like human flourishing and that it was going to contribute to overcoming disease and all these different things and like standards of living were going to go up and like war would be less necessary because of international trade like things like these were like i guess you could see the most optimistic beliefs and we've like looked at a lot of them already talking about mm -hmm. other books on this exact podcast so it's probably familiar to people who've been listening and then the the occurrence of these wars leaves people thinking oh perhaps all of history is really like mere accident is kind of a common way of phrasing it perhaps events just happen, things occur, and there is no larger, like, meaningful structure to be discovered within history, which mm -hmm. is maybe the more interesting debate for me. Yeah, I think that's the more rich one. I would also like to add, for him, I don't think he's, I think he's too idealist to be a strict technological determin determinist like that, where because we've oh, yeah. mechanized, <laughs> it's, it's on that. What he does point out is that there is an ideological political quality to the expansion of mechanized state powers that allow for a more subjective penetration of the political sub in general and the political subject through totalitarianism. And that's really important. And that it's not just that it is like, oh, we've killed a bunch of people, but and I'll read here from page seven. He says, the suicidal self-destructiveness of the European state system in two world wars gave lie to the notion of superior Western rationality. While the distinction between civilized and barbarian that was instinctive to Europeans in the 19th century was much harder to make after the Nazi death camps. Instead of human history leading to a single direction, there seemed to be as many goals as there were peoples or civilizations with liberal democracy having no particular privilege among them. We see this, okay, so that's end quote. We see this in the way people respond to the Great Depression worldwide, and they're all sort of looking over each other's shoulders, whether they're fascist, communist or not, because they're like, I don't know what to do. There's this protean quality that happens, uh, the complete leveling of the life world of 19th century Europe that happens like over the course of World War I, I would say, including the death of a certain type of honor culture. And I think one of the things that he might add, or that I think he's, he's right to add in this, is that so much of that level of progress, and Lash talked about this, had to do with the idea of like civilizations as like having the same sort of development as a child. And Europe could no longer pretend to a kind of adulthood that had informed its ideology of progress, as well as justified its own colonial holdings. All right. Um, so. Which, fair enough. Yeah. However, yeah. the reason why I think it's always interesting, I always enjoy reading Nietzsche because I feel like 
he manages like the he manages to be as he always loves to say untimely and he even credits his untimeliness to the fact that he is a classicist and that yeah. what is the point of being a classicist if not to find things which are untimely to bring into the present mm -hmm. and to look at them and see like what of this is for us now 